Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Where we try to take you inside Whitehall. And see what goes on behind the scenes in Parliament. I suppose for the first episode, James, we should probably actually introduce ourselves and say who we are. My background, I've worked in politics for a number of years. Um, for anyone that does know me, that would probably be in relation to working for both Michael Gove and Priti Patel as a special advisor, which we'll explore at some point in the uh, in the DEFRA, Department for the Environment and the Home Office, Natalie with Priti. The unseen power. The unseen power. And you, Jonathan? Well, I'm the uh, current MP for Stoke-on-Trent, North Kids Graham and Talk, elected for the first time in December 2019. I was uh, the Minister for School Standards under Liz Truss. And before entering Parliament, I spent around uh, eight years working as a teacher in secondary schools. Brilliant. I mean, well, we thought the first episode, given we're looking at Whitehall and how it works, we should look at MPs, who certainly, in, in their own view, would consider themselves the most important people in Westminster. You say that, James, but having known you for a little while now, I would suggest that special advisors certainly think they're the most important people in the room, including over the Secretary of State that they're meant to be supporting. Well, I think that's something for a later episode. For this episode, <laughs> let's look at the MPs. You're an MP, relatively new. Tell us about a bit about your journey to becoming an MP. When, how old were you? When did you first think to myself, yes, I'm looking at TV, seeing the, you know, inside the House of Commons with people heckling each other and think that is what I want to do with my life? Well, first of all, the heckling uh, is something I'm not going to comment on because I know you're trying to goad me there because I've got a bit of a reputation. And that's something I'm sure we'll come across at a later episode. I was 11 years old when I first started to really know politics and think that being an MP looked like quite a cool job. And that's because my mum and dad said that we had to watch Newsround if we wanted to watch Blue Peter. And then we had to discuss what was on Newsround around the dinner table. And every time politics somehow came into it, whether it was a politician making a law, changing a law, having an opinion on something. Uh, and so it just looked like if you wanted to actually do something, do something quite big in this country, make a name for yourself, then that was the way to go about doing it. And so so you were pretty young then. At that point, I think in my life, I wanted to be either a lorry driver or I'd just watch Top Gun. Well, lorry drivers are sound correct. My granddad was a lorry driver. It's so. a great career. Or a fighter pilot. So, which which changed as I got older. So, did you from that age were you consistently like, yes, I want to be an MP? Because some people listening, some might think, oh, that's pretty geeky. Oh, it's uh, it's very geeky. I think to be in politics is geeky. And uh, by the way, we should say thank God uh, for the RAF that they didn't have to deal with you uh, <laughs> at any stage. It was probably sixteen. It started to cement and become a bit more like real in my head. And it was because I had a a politics teacher at my school called Dr. Simon People, who actually is the le uh, Labour group leader at Tamworth Council, or he was anyway, at the t uh, for a while ago. And he was this diehard socialist who taught in uh, at my school and just loved the debate and could argue for something as much as he supported it, but also for something he didn't actually believe in. He taught me the art of knowing both sides of the argument. And in fact, he was such a good teacher that even though he came and campaigned against me, when I ran in Stoke on Trent North, I still won. So I made sure he got a little shout out for that uh, in, in the maiden speech. And actually he wrote me a lovely letter thanking me uh, for the name check in the chamber. That's really nice. So you, you've kind of got to a more formative age. You want to be an MP. At that point, how do you start to get into politics? Like, are you active? Are you, are you a Tory party member at this time? Or is this where you reveal that actually you were a Lib Dem at 18? <laughs> so my parents, so I come from a very 
politically diverse household. So my mum, conservative, my dad, liberal Democrat slash conservative, my stepfather, who I also call dad for the confusion, and I'm sure when we do this uh, podcast further, is a lifelong Labour supporter. My stepmom has voted Green and uh, has a relation who was in Parliament as an Irish Nationalist MP. So it's a pretty opinionated household. Uh, Everyone's, uh, you know, got varying views. So I wasn't allowed to join the party until I was 18. I had to basically go and I spent a bit of time with the local Liberal Democrats as well as the local Conservative Party. And when I was 18 years old, on my 18th birthday, I thought I was like a, a football player signing up. Uh, for their first team and I, I decided on my 18th birthday what better way to spend it than go online and join the Conservative Party. You do when you're 18. So we know that uh, for those that know a little bit about your background uh, that you were a teacher so you're going to go off and do your training to be a teacher so at that point where are you politically? Are, are you involved? Are you doing anything essentially are you doing anything to f- like further the cause of trying to become an MP? Yes yeah, so look when I joined at 18 I probably was inactive i kind of expected just to be told sort of what to do and and i didn't really hear much from my association at the time which was stratford on avon the conservative association so it wasn't until i got to university i started really looking around because i'd always heard of oxford university's conservative association but i was at oxford brooks and there wasn't really anything active so i just took a punt one day and emailed uh, stratford conservatives back home and just said look i really want to get involved love to come and chat and maybe even one day run as a counsellor, which I thought was quite sort of like forward, but I thought, why not just stick yourself out there? So I had a meeting with uh, James, who was the agent at the time. And he told me, well, you know, we got campaigning sessions, keep an eye out. I'll let some local local counsellors let them know that you're active and uh, interested. Then out of the blue, I got a phone call saying, would you like to stand as a candidate? And I was in my then third year of um, university and I was going to run in a Lib Dem safe seat in Shipston on Stour. And so I drove back after lectures in the evenings and leafleted on my own, canvassed on my own, didn't understand what on earth I was doing, just got some leaflets and just lived them through every door, knocked on doors and asked people would they vote for me. Didn't know the pitter-patter that you learn how to sell yourself on the doorstep. And uh, in that election, despite not expecting to win, in May 2011, I ended up becoming the elected uh, councillor for Ships on Stour by 17 votes, which was quite worrying because I was meant to be starting my PGC for teacher training in London. So suddenly I had to figure out what I was going to do. So you you stayed as a councillor? So I stayed as a councillor, enrolled in my teacher training course, and basically would have to get my schools who had me to kindly let me go off every now and again and make up those days to attend council meetings would come back in the evenings to attend the uh, local town council, parish council uh, meeting as well. And so my stepdad would pick me up from Warwick Parkway Station at like 5pm, 6pm, drive me to Shipston, uh, sit in a car whilst I was in the meeting, and then drive me back to Warwick Parkway and get the train down to London. So I'd mark my books, uh, get in at midnight and be back up at 5am to get over towards Bexley where I was working at my first school at the time. So yeah, it was quite... (laughs) It was quite stressful because obviously you want to do a good job in teach training. That's what I want to do my professionally. I want to be a good counsellor, but obviously I'm not in and around the patch all the time. Um, so yeah, it was. I did the job for about 18 months and then I stood down, I think it was October 2012, because I then got offered, a, I was then in a full-time job in London and it just wasn't sustainable to be able to represent people fairly. And just so during the period you're a counsellor, what are the bits that you see that you think 
yeah, I want to stick with this. You know, it's obviously hard work. You're going there late at night. It looks like it's a big, big challenge. What are the bits about being a counsellor that you, that you then thought, I want to carry on doing this, I want to carry on being a counsellor, or I want to become an MP at some point? I've got to be honest, I probably didn't have the best experience of being a counsellor, in part because I wasn't around all the time. So there's probably lots of what I learned about politics now is there's how much goes on behind the scenes, outside the meeting room, the conversations over coffee and stuff like that. So I wasn't having any of those. Obviously, I was by far the youngest. I was 21, so the youngest in Stratford District Council's history at that time. And I think there was a little bit like, oh, he's the young pup. Like, you know, sort mm. of, he's over there. Um, and he'll just do as he's told and just follow the line. And obviously, as you know, James, I'm, I'm quite an opinionated so-and-so. Um, and I probably didn't always deal with that uh, the best myself. So I probably... Uh, cause some friction in relationships there at times within my own group. Uh, I remember standing up and saying that um, because of the economic situation, councillors shouldn't have a pay rise. And I didn't talk to my councillors about that. And I volunteered, which I did, to give my uh, rise away to some local causes. And I made you Mr. Popular. Well, maybe Mr. Popular within the group, but also look, I also understand how, like, to some people that would have just been seen as grandstanding. Mm. And I think that's what they got annoyed about. It just seemed like, oh, you're just trying to grab a headline when actually, like, as... luckily you could never be accused of that now. <laughs> I don't try and grab headlines, James. Again, I'm sure, I'm sure you're conscious to tell me otherwise. Um, I remember, like, being on the overview and scrutiny committee. That was quite interesting. And I really wish I'd got into that more because that's where you're calling in decisions made by the cabinet and really looking at like whether or not that's the best way to spend money. But again, there was so much wider reading that I probably needed to clue up on. And I wasn't, I just didn't have the time to do the wider reading. I was trying to learn to be a teacher, marking, creating lesson plans and trying to do my council casework. So look, I, I loved it and I had some great relationships in the community. I don't think I was the best counselor and it certainly taught me a lot, but it was, yeah, after that experience and because it didn't go as well as I hoped. I kind of just went into a political hiatus. I stayed as a member, mm. but once I quit, I, I just focused purely on teaching for about two, three years. But at that point, you're down in Bexley? I'm down in Bexley, yeah. And so at some point, you kind of, how did you get re re-engaged in politics? I suppose I was just watching it on the telly. It was run up to the 2015 general election, getting quite exciting. Um, obviously, I'd had my time away. I remember going to help in the by-election which was for uh, Kelly Tolhurst, uh, the one that when Mark Reckless actually won, uh, when obviously he defected to UKIP, we had a by-election and Mark won. I remember getting on the bus uh, from central London, this double-decker bus that was taking volunteers over there. And I remember we were having a special guest and the special guest was Michael Gove. And Michael comes on and sits next to me because no one else, I'm just like Billy Nomate. So he just sits next to me like near the back of the top deck near the back with all the cool kids, obviously, were hanging out. And Michael was so lovely because for an hour, he let me basically be a sycophant over how great he was as education secretary and all the changes we were doing were great. And he made me feel like he really actually was interested. That's probably the confidence that he needed to continue those reforms. Well, this is what I mean. Perhaps it's, it's, your, claim, it's your real claim to fame. What I'm saying is the Gove Gibeon reforms were made possible by the, the boost in morale by Jonathan Gullis. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure Michael to this day remembers that conversation. He wouldn't, he wouldn't obviously forget something as important and monumental as that. I'm sure, I'm sure he does. So you've got, you're getting back a bit more involved. Is this a point you're now starting to think... Maybe I would yeah. try, try to, you know, become a candidate at some point. Yeah, so I'm thinking, I'm living in Bexley and around there. I've been working there for a while now. This is 
home to me. Should I think about one day running for Bexley Council? So I reached out to the local MP, James Brockenshire. He had already come to visit the school I was working at because we had a couple of uh, campaign projects. I taught citizenship. So we were running like an Endangered Species Day project. And he came along and was so great with the kids in terms of sitting there, listening to their campaign, responding to them, posing questions to them, but in a way that wasn't uh, hostile, in a way that was uh, fair. Would regularly write back. Every time students wrote him a letter asking for their his opinion, it, a really good quality letter came back in. And you know the amount of kids that used to want me to photocopy it to put it on their fridge – uh, at home or to show that they had that reply it was so special so I thought James is clearly a really special guy and well he is we all know that and obviously it's uh, tough that he's no longer here um, and I just we would meet up and or we just chat on the phone and he kind of gave me words of advice or told me yes you had a bad experience but you can come back from that uh, this is obviously what you should work on this is what you should look into but the key piece of advice he gave me was if you want to get into this game, you're going to have to have the family support around you because it's a very selfish career. Mm. Selfish in the sense of you're getting into the office for nine on a Monday. You're not getting back home. If you live in London, you're not getting back home till 11 midnight. Then you're up again early in the morning for meetings. You're going to have to campaign at least one day at the weekend. Um, if events come up, your partner's going to have to come along with you and suffer being at some dinners and listening to everyone giving their opinion on everything and telling you, why you're wrong on everything and your partner being patient. And particularly I feel for like women, I think there's this expectation that sort of like uh, uh, female partners in particular are like the housewife, mm. like the good doting housewife who deal with the kids and do the cooking at home. And obviously uh, that's not the case. Uh, my own partner's, you know, as a professional teacher herself. So I think that he was like, you're going to have to have someone who's got that patience. And that was certainly something that stuck in my mind and has stuck in my mind, how to get the balance as best you can between doing the day job, particularly in a marginal seat, but also making sure you're a good partner. And in my case as well now, a good father. Mm. And so at this point, did, did you did you run in Bexley? So I didn't run in Bexley because um, I decided to move back to Stratford um, move closer to home because well let's be let's be honest I moved back home uh, into my childhood bedroom <laughs> so I could save up for my uh, first home so I was back living with mum and dad I contacted Stratford Conservative said I was back said I wanted to run there was a bit of hesitation from some people bearing in mind that it had been a rocky sort of end to the relationship there back in 2012 so I was put in another Lib Dem uh, safe seat and took all James' advice and I just and I had a new agent at the time called Alex uh, who was there for a while, actually. And Alex had come from Birmingham. He'd also worked in Sutton Coalfield um, for Andrew Mitchell. And he told me, you're just going to have to graft and prove these people that you've learned from the past. And I went out in that seat all the time, ran a proper campaign, took Alex's advice, who'd worked in marginals, as well as in uh, Labour safe seats and in Conservative safe seats, and just absorbed all the knowledge I could from him. And actually, and made sure I supported those who were in marginal seats to try and help them get them over the line and that election probably was the making of me politically to have the confidence I could do it but also was the understanding of the team game and understanding that you are the team is the bigger thing here and you have to put yourself second actually and so you're now on the council in Stratford not at this time, no. So I didn't win the election. I got absolutely trounced by Jenny. Ah. Uh, Jenny Jenny battered me uh, overwhelmingly. Jenny is was a lovely lady who, when you knocked on doors of 
people who would vote Conservative general elections would tell you, oh, but locally we vote for Jenny. Jenny's name recognition was through the roof, a local teacher herself. And there was absolutely, yeah, I got I got slaughtered. I remember on polling day going down one street and I think it was every other house had um, the big uh, Corex board Lib Dem poster saying voting Lib Dem. And I remember looking at my uh, a, a friend, Alex, who's the agent, and said, oh, do you think we could maybe pull off a shock? And he went, no, you need to give up that dream now. <laughs> so you weren't, was that a seat you knew that or a seat? You it was a seat we weren't expected to win, but we treated it like a marginal in order to draw Pete Lib Dem activists into that seat. So where we could target marginals like uh, Stratford North, as it was called, uh, we could try and gain that one. I don't think we did actually in the end, but we, but again, it was still helpful that we were trying to draw Lib Dem resources and activists into the seat against me. Uh, and that, and then after that election, it was Alex Hall, who I spoke to, again, the agent, that's his full name now. He probably, I'm sure you'll appreciate being shouted out. It's, that's career ender for him, isn't it? Me naming him. That's it, it's over. It's over. And he, uh, he said, look, if you want to be a parliamentary candidate, I've seen many in my time, you've got to go outside of Stratford and actually see what other places are like. So he told me, you work in Birmingham, here's a Bobby Alden, who's a councillor in Birmingham, contact him and go out campaigning in Birmingham and see what it's like in labour safe seats and see what it's like in marginals and see the work ethic. And oh my God, the work ethic, Bobby Alden, his, his lot. And actually Gary Sandbrook, who's now the MP for Birmingham Northfield, leaflet after leaflet after leaflet. And it wasn't like, oh, we'll do an hour, then have a coffee break. It was like, we'll do six hours and then we'll get a bottle of water and then we could probably get another two hours in before it gets dark. Uh, so yeah, I had great fun doing that. And so it was 2016 that I said, right, I think I want to become a parliamentary candidate. And, ah. th- and that was the moment I then asked Alex, what's the process? So now now we're into the road to being an MP, and which is the, kind of what we're trying to look, look at here. What, what, where do you start with that? You, you've gone to someone you know and you said, look, I'm interested in becoming an MP. What is the first thing you, you have to do? You fill out a form, you go and speak, you do an interview. He where gave, do you start? Alex gave me an email address for the candidates department at Conservative HQ, CTHQ, because we like an acronym in politics, Love as that. we do in teaching. So CTHQ, Conservative Headquarters. And I emailed them, said I was interested. And then I got a form, a, t- a two-sided form, very basic, confirming your interest and send it back to them and heard nothing for a little while. And then out of the blue, I was advised to go and meet a former MP who was in the West Midlands to have a chat with them and just hear. I can't remember the name <laughs> exactly. They're an MP of Birmingham. I'm pretty sure it was Birmingham Northfield. Uh, I should have I should have researched story. the name before I came on the show, knowing that you'd probably do this to me. Uh, he was lovely and had me at his house, and he was so kind. And uh, once I find out who he is after this, James, I'm going to make sure I... Uh, write him a letter and say thank you because uh you know if he comes across this podcast uh he'll be i'm sure devastated that i've I've chosen not to remember who he was so i've had the chat with him uh basically he's told you the reality he tells you the reality of what it's like to be an mp are you really sure you want this the sacrifice the tough you know the press attention uh especially with social media becoming bigger and bigger so i said yes because, uh, you know, I'm committed that stage. Just stop there a second. Given your experience now, do you think your eyes were open to exactly what it's like? Do you think you have an idea, like, can you have an idea? I, you know, follow politics, have worked in politics. I think I've got an idea of it. But would you say you you knew what you were getting into or you were a bit naive? Had absolutely no idea. Absolutely naive. I think 
so many different social media platforms now and how you interact with your constituents and your constituents almost contacting you as they do online and expecting you to respond as if you're doing your casework via social media, as well as obviously being in a marginal seat, the need to be constantly visible to your electorate so they can see that you're proactive and out and about and the hours that you do do. I think in theory, you can hear it and go, yeah, that sounds fine, but actually, no. I don't think, I I think I was still very naive to understand what it was really like. So luckily you were naive. You didn't know what really you were getting into. So you, you carry on. And so where, where you know do you what, You know what I love about the naivety thing? My favourite thing when you try and recruit council candidates is you always, <laughs> the funny thing is, oh, it's only like eight meetings a year. Yeah. And then what you forget to tell them is, oh, and then there's all these committee meetings. And then there's the group meetings where we have the discussion about how we're going to vote on things. And then there's the uh, meetings you'll need to actually have with your constituents. So it's that classic recruitment tactic of, oh, it's uh, it's only eight meetings a year, so it's not going to take loads of time. And then the person gets elected and goes, why have I got like 25 meetings and I've got people emailing me every day demanding me to deal with this planning application or this pothole and go, oh yeah, that's also part of the job. And they go, you didn't say that. I said, well, I'm pretty sure we did say something around that. Well, I've had this. I've been asked at one point, oh, would you, we need a kind of paper candidate in a ward, you know, we can't win. And uh, so it's fine. You know, you do a bit of campaigning. That bit, obviously I don't mind. I've done it for all variety of things. And luckily I have known a number of people who were told, including MPs, don't worry, you're just a paper candidate. You're not going to win. They wake up on election morning, they're a councillor, they're an MP. If you're an MP, you're in big trouble because you, you've got to leave your job. Um, but if you're a councillor, and then luckily I know enough councillors to know that it's, it's a very hard job. You work, you know, most people work all day. And when, when we've all finished and we all go home and have our dinner and watch the football or Coronation Street, they're off to a council meeting to talk about the, you know, whatever's going, you know, the local potholes or whatever. Potholes, bus stops, road infrastructure, planning applications, uh, you know, investing in a museum, a sports hall, you know, uh, refurbishment or running the leisure centre. I think councillors, we're giving a big shout out here to councillors. Councillors are great people who sacrifice an awful lot and don't get the praise recognition that they deserve because actually there's a lot of really good ones. Uh, There's lots of... uh, uh, you know, ones as well that I'm sure I could point out and uh, bemoan, but actually the overwhelming majority are it's really hardworking and it is a sacrifice and it is a second job and it does massively impact their lives as well. And I think the public, the public should just say to their councillor every now and again, if they do a good job, just thank you because they deserve it. Like with MPs as well. <laughs> I wouldn't say that with MPs. I, I, I don't think we help ourselves the we'll, best of times. We'll leave people to listen to the full podcast and then decide whether or not. <laughs> <laughs> they should thank the MP. So you're now you've, you're moving on with the candidacy. So where are you now? Yeah. So I think how get, realistic is it at this point? Do you think, oh, I'm going to get it? I'm going to be allowed to be a prospective parliamentary candidate, a PPC? I think I'm. I think I've got a shot, but I've, I, I don't. I don't think I'm going to walk into a safe seat. I know it's a long journey. In my head, I've got you know at this stage, what I'm 26. I think at the earliest it'll be 40 until I run in a seat that I might have a chance of winning. So after the chat, they then send you the big form where you have to fill in all your life story. You have to give references. Um, Those references are ideally your local MP, if you've got a Conservative MP, or your local association chairman. They should have at least as well at that stage uh, someone who is also uh, knows you professionally. So mine was one of my my line manager at the time uh, in teaching. Then there was also people who know you personally, but not necessarily in the workplace setting. So I got those references there. And then I got invited 
to come do my PAB, Parliamentary Assessment Board Day. Okay, I've heard a lot about these. I don't really know what goes There on. are so many myths about them. And actually, the system has changed since I did it. So I'm probably talking as like a... Uh, a dinosaur now compared to what let's, the system let, is. Let's do. You no, know, you Well, yeah, no. So the parliamentary board is great because you uh, you get told by Conservative HQ uh, we're going to invite you to this parliamentary assessment board down in Cambridge. So just to be clear, you fire in an application. You've got some references. They get their references. You put that application in. Like is that that's it? And then they come back and say, "Well, we have we'll, we'll, we'll the references it. must have gone fine." So then they say, "We're inviting you to this interview day." It's it called the PAB. Uh, well, I was about to say, James. Yeah, you get invited to go to Cambridge, and uh, you're and you're told uh, you'll pay two hundred fifty or quid. It was back in my day for the privilege of being interviewed uh, to see if you could even be. So you pay to... just to be interviewed. I paid to be interviewed. Yeah, and then I had to obviously pay for the B and B. I stayed in overnight because Cambridge to Stratford's quite a journey. So I wanted to make sure that I was there and ready to go. And then you turn up on the at the day, and you're sort of one of four groups that they're doing in that day. And in within your own group, there's probably six to eight of you, as it was the time. And actually, in one of my groups, in my group, sorry, was the now MP for Stroud, Siobhan Bailey. Oh. So that was quite nice when we got elect when she got selected for Stroud. That was quite a weird moment because I hadn't spoken to her since the PAB, and to suddenly see her progressing like that was really nice. So, how many people go down for this training day trip? So uh, interview day. Interview day. Sorry. Uh, I mean, there was. I'm pretty sure there was six to eight in our group. So uh, there must have been forty to fifty in that one day. But I don't. Again, okay. now they might be slightly different. Do you see any of the others? Do you just know your own group? You just know your own group. Okay. Um, so sort of they go one after the other, and it's it was in my day like a, a series of tests. So there was a written test uh, where you were literally writing like exam style questions, and then there was one question at the end where they say like, if you were introducing a private members bill, what would that private member's bill be? And I know one of the people on the interview day said that they would, I don't think they knew what private member's bill were because they told us that they'd written there to say that they would ban private member's bills. I was like, well, that's how that backbenchers... That seems like it might be difficult to get through. Well, yes, because that would prevent backbenchers ever bringing forward legislation. So I, I don't think she passed. Who is it that, is it on a Friday, is it private member's bill that on a Friday... Friday's sitting Fridays, who, but also like you get these 10-minute rule bills as well. Is it Chris well. Chope that shouts them down? Chris Chope's the one who will shout object. So Although was, he didn't he, shout object to one of my ones recently. I managed to, Chris, Chris was happy not to shout object. But that, we've just lost a future Chris Chope then, because that, that person in the, <laughs> on the away day was maybe, maybe would have dealt with it for good. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to let Chris, I'll have to find out who the name of the, name of the individual was and let Chris know that, he, you know, this is someone who needs to, if he decides to step down in the future, there's his, there's his ready-made replacement. I'm assuming you're going to ask me what my private members bill is. I was desperate to know. So I said that I would want to see in relationship and sex education schools, the teaching of safe sex for LGBT people, not just heterosexual couples, which I'm sure to many listeners will shock them that that was something because there's this sort of parody idea of what I'm like. Mm. But it, I did find it bizarre that in schools we teach about safe sex for heterosexual kids, but we wouldn't talk to, for lesbian or gay pupils, like how they would engage in safe sex. And I found so this is weird. bringing your out, your day job, your outside experience yeah. into what you want to, you know, yeah. some of the changes you can make, you know, by being an MP if you, if you were successful. Exactly, yeah. And I just thought, you know, that was a common sense approach and something that would get enough support from across the house that it would be something would easily pass through Parliament. Hmm. Um, then there was like a, a task where you're doing casework. Now, uh, Nadim Zahawi, uh, who was my MP, 
uh, and my mentor as well at the time had brought me into his office to spend some time with his staff to learn about how to deal with casework uh, to, to get advice. And so you had to rank the casework in order of priority. You then had to write down suggested what you would write back in suggestion uh, as well. Uh, they then obviously go away and score that. There was a, a task where you had to work in a group and there's been like a big flood. I'm pretty sure our one was. And someone's a local MP, someone's a neighbouring MP, someone's a leader of the council, someone's a parish councillor. And you're all basically just what you're being watched by three people as you're all having this fake interaction over this fake flood but it's about how we all interact with each other and then you're constantly worrying am i overbearing am i not overbearing enough do i need to be more assertive and that was yeah that that was the most stressful having worked at defra the sensible person would have said let's just get the military in because <laughs> that's what the public want and they're the ones that did. The, the smart politician would have said let's get the let's get the military in lads it's going to sort it out well if did you guys sort the flood out I, I think we did, actually. I think we did a damn good job of highlighting the concerns and making sure that local people were protected. Uh, well, most of the time, I passed my PAB, so okay. we'll come to that in a second. So if there's a flood near you, call Jonathan Gullis. <laughs> it will all be fine. <laughs> oh, I'm setting myself up. The more you talk, you start to realise this is going to come back to bite me. Um, <laughs> then there was a task where you do, I'm going to do a classic politician thing, move on. Um, then Moving on. Moving on. And then we did a, um, a public speaking task, and you kind of get three minutes to talk about a topic. I can't actually remember what the topic was, but you have three minutes and then you just stand up and you give like a two-minute speech. And then there's a QA and a uh, and they just fire random questions at you. And one of my assessors asked me, what is a dab? And a dab is this uh, famous American football celebration uh, started by Cam Newton, Carolina Panthers quarterback, as far as I'm aware. And as I've just displayed, because I was trying to be cool and down with the kids at school, uh, you know, in terms of listening to their chat, I, I had heard of what the dab was. But I bizarrely, with nervous energy, decided to also do the dab, uh, which is a movement uh, which I would suggest uh, as a grown man in the suit trying to become a parliamentary candidate, probably sent the wrong vibe. I think we're going to need a picture of that. We'll have to get a picture. We'll put the, we'll put the picture will come after this episode of the dab being recreated. And I'll do it in Westminster Hall just to really embarrass myself. Excellent. Um, and then the final <laughs> task for me was uh, about a 45-minute interview with an MP where some some MPs are trained to be part of the assessment process. Uh, so they get specialist training from CCHQ. And my MP who interviewed me was Nigel Adams. Hmm. Who's standing down this time. Who is standing down this time. Nigel won't remember this because I'm sure he saw loads of us. But I remember coming in the room and Nigel has the most incredible poker face and hmm. I've ever seen and almost looked like he was annoyed at having to be there. And I remember sitting down and thinking, oh, I'll try and... <laughs> relax the mood light in the mood so when he asked me um, when did you want to become an MP just as you did I told him the story of 11 years old and I went oh that's pretty tragic isn't it laughing about it and he went yes it is <laughs> with a dead straight face and that <laughs> I just I remember sitting there in my head I lived rent free in my own head yeah. the rest of that interview going I've torched it this is all over this is can't this go is done. and then at the end of that you get a tea and uh, I think we got a, a croissant and then it was, oh, thank you very much for coming. And you'll get a letter in the post. No email at the time. Now they do email. I don't like this. Because that's why it's going modern. It used to be you got a letter in the post. This is a great example of the falling standards of the Conservative Party that they have now resorted to email only. I'm going to campaign with the party chairman and say, bring back the letter. Bring back the letter. Bring back the brown envelope letter. And I was told in about four weeks we'd hear, well, we're six weeks on and I've heard nothing. And I contact some other people I know who've done the PAB 
around the same time. And they've gone, I've not had my letter yet. So this debate about, do you contact CCHQ? If you do, do you look pushy? And does that mean your letter will just get ripped up? So everyone's in this like, CCHQ are living it in everyone's heads. Yeah. And then I come home from work one day and there is the letter. I remember going over and opening it and reading it. And it said, at the time, there was three options. You're either on the full list, the team seat list, which is where you'd run in a seat we didn't expect to win, or it was a flat-out rejection. And you couldn't reapply for 12 months. Full list is you can apply for any seat in the country. If you're on the full list, you've got a fairly decent chance of becoming an MP. Yeah, basically, you could run for a key marginal or a safe seat, as they would be called. Um, A team seat list is literally you're going to go and get hammered, but you're going to show us that we think you're capable, but you need to prove it in an election that you can handle the pressure. You need to go and work hard. You need to go and prove it. Shows you put the effort. Shows you put the shift in. And then you got... I got on the team seat list, which is exactly what I expected. I'd have been shocked if I got on the full list. Mm. And then... Uh, the letter also then says that you need to pay £100 a year to stay on the list. So nice. So another another £100. And you had to pay within 30 days or you were off the list. So that that was straight out of the bank uh, that day. And then I, probably, I think mum and dad may have fronted that. I, I have paid them back for it. Um, but yeah, no, straight down, straight there. And then uh, that was it. I was on the list. And then you get contacted by sort of someone who, who is on the list themselves, but has, has been on the list for a while and helps deal and that M person was in the West Midlands obviously where I lived and that person is Dr. Luke Evans who is now also an MP oh. he'd already run before we went and met for a coffee over Birmingham and uh, he was great he just sort of told me what life was like how to be on the list and the key basic thing was you need to be out campaigning regularly make a note of every session you attend um, in a local election time you'll be assigned councils that are marginals to go to and you'll be judged on how often you go there how well you interact with everyone in the group and uh, and obviously the MP and the agent there will probably both be asked to write reports. So I waited. I went out and carried on doing what I was doing in Birmingham. And then I got asked to go and help in Redditch. And I just went over there. And every, at least one day in the working week, I was out there in the evening. And then at the weekends, I do the Saturday and sometimes the Sunday all day. But you're now a candidate, so you're now allowed to you're allowed to run for seats. So where where do you go to now? How do you how do you get hold of a seat? I hadn't even started to think about that process because I had been on the candidates list for all of three four months. Okay, and was just volunteering because in my head, what year is remind us? So we're in twenty we're into twenty seventeen now. Where I'm on the list, so it was early twenty seventeen. Spoiler alert: We have an election coming up. (laughs) So it was February twenty seventeen. I got on the list. I got the letter. Okay, Um, I've done the PAB. I think it was the November twenty sixteen. I was thinking to myself, well, we've got another election in 2020. Yeah, we've got uh, time. We've got time. Um, just nail this first year, be helpful in Redditch. Uh, obviously, help out still in Birmingham, help out in Stratford, boom, boom, boom. And Theresa May says, we're not having an election. Theresa May says, Don't no worry election. about it. It's not going to happen. And then she says, we're having an election. I, I think we should all probably at this stage in the Conservative Party blame James Starkey because he was uh, probably in and around government at that stage, if I remember correctly, from his CV. Um, so I'm sure James was uh, agitating for an election because obviously having uh, just won, having still the high from the vote leave victory in 2016, I'm sure he was like, why not? Why not go in 2017 and just, uh, you know. I worked on the 17 election. I know. Well, well there you go. Now we know who, now we, so it's not for Theresa May's fault. It's James Darkey's. 
This is where I would say the MPs are the important people, so we we definitely need to blame them for that. Okay. So, so, so Theresa May calls an election. So yeah, so I'm on the list. And the Theresa May calls this snap election, and it's all panic stations because I want to run because I'm aware if I miss out, and it'll be 2022 for I first run, and I because she's going to get a massive majority. Because she's going to get a massive majority. So, and you're going to strong and stable for five years. You haven't got a chance. <laughs> so, um, I'm basically calling the deem. Uh, and going, please, can you help me? Let the people in CCHQ know I'm capable, blah, blah. I get told to go to Warsaw South for the selection. Um, and I was up against Alicia Kearns, who's also now an MP. And I remember um, getting to this nightclub in Warsaw where they were hosting the uh, event and sat there uh, for with two a, with hours. With a Red Bull? No, <laughs> just, a, just a Diet Coke. And sat there next to Alicia. And we talked for two hours. The first time I got to meet Alicia, we had a great chat. And then we suddenly realised that neither of us had been called into the room. And after two hours, we uh, someone came out to apologise to us, but we were barred from even presenting to the membership because they wanted the local candidate. So I drove Alicia to Wolverhampton train station. She can get back down to London. And I went back home thinking, it's all done. And then I was out helping Eddie Hughes in Warsaw North and got a call about 7pm saying, do you want uh, to uh, run in the general election? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to run. We want you to run in Washington and Sunderland West. I went, yes, fantastic, thank you. And then they just put the CTH just put the phone down. And then next thing you know, I'm telling Eddie Hughes I need to get home because I got a text then come through saying you need to be in York at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. So you're off to York. This is where it's not unfair to say you're a paper candidate. I'm an absolute paper candidate. I'm against the fantastic, and I'm going to say she's fantastic, Sharon Hodgson. In, Sun, in Washington and the West has never voted Conservative in his entire life. So you're you, you running that one against spoiler alert. It's not an amazing election for the Conservatives. Yeah, no. So I obviously, so I, I dash home, grab a bag, drive up, uh, have a sleep quickly, drive up to York. There's about five of us in this multi-story car park getting changed into suits. I go and get my photo with Theresa May for a leaflet. I sit in the audience when she's doing a speech uh, to launch her candidates of the North, lots of clapping. And then I meet the chairman of Washington's London Conservatives, who, uh, Graham, great guy from Leicester originally. And uh, he says he's quite grumpy because he wanted a local person and he's got some jumped up Shire Tories that he's got to deal with and kind of looks at me and susses me out, asks me a few questions about the area. This is where I have to guiltily confess that when someone said Washington is on the West, I wasn't fully aware that there was another Washington in other than Washington, D.C. So you think I might be about to be president? <laughs> no, I don't think I'm going to be president. I'm just thinking I wonder where Washington is. I obviously know it's near Sunderland because it's in the name, but I was like, I've never known of a Washington uh, to exist in the UK. So the great people of Washington will be delighted to hear this. It's actually a fantastic area. I'm, and there's a lot of roundabouts, by the way. And I remember Googling uh, and Oh, this is so bad. Wikipedia coming to my aid to teach me about Washington. So when Graham asked me some stats, in fact, I could uh, rattle off that I clearly knew something about the local area. Well, as a good MP, that surely that's your primary resource. That is, <laughs> no, Wikipedia should not be a uh, a resource, and no one should consider that to be reliable. And I do not rely on Wikipedia to give me information uh, to this day. I withdraw my remark, Mr. Speaker. You may continue. So uh, drive up there. I move into, uh, I've got five weeks off work. So it was agreed by my employer. I can have five weeks off work unpaid. So I'm in a, um, I, I get this Airbnb in a student, uh, this room in a student ha- flat, a house, sorry, in Sunderland. Uh, they're all trainee doctors and nurses. I didn't tell them I was 
a conservative parliamentary Probably candidate. Probably for the best. Um, because uh, I don't know if I, I was a bit worried about not being very popular in the house uh, or my room getting trashed. So I was up there and yeah, I'm suddenly told, right, we've got this leaflet that we're going to mail out. You've got two days to write a leaflet. And so in the back of my car, I put five different outfits in there and drove around with the guy who they wanted locally to be the candidate, but very kindly agreed to be my sort of chaperone. And he had this lovely family who basically adopted me and looked after me and fed me and gave me pat lunches every day. Bless them. They were fantastic. And um, he took me around the patch and we went and got photos. And yes, I was literally hopping in and out of cars uh, to throw on a different outfit to obviously demonstrate I've been there for a while. I remember the naughtiest photo we got was the Honda uh, factory um, and going up over, oh, it's a Honda Nissan, sorry, Nissan, going over this bridge that was where employees would walk over and getting this very quick photo before security chases off saying, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. So I was in my suit outside the biggest employer locally. Uh, yeah, that was quite that was quite good fun. As we said, that election doesn't go amazingly well. You weren't going to win your seat anyway. In, yeah, in no, so that's a great point. So look, with the seat, what we what we... What I did was I wanted to still put up some sort of fight and try and draw, learn from that lesson of Stratford, draw the opposition into their own seats because I was assigned Bishop Auckland to help there. Hmm. So in the mornings I'd get up, go and deliver leaflets where Labour councillors lived on their streets, uh, targeted a couple of wards, you see, with Washington East and Washington South, if I remember correctly. And so we uh, delivered leaflets around there. I went and did some visits. So we had a Facebook profile that was still uh, regurgitating content. But yeah, from about... 9am till 9pm, I'd be in Bishop Auckland helping, who was a guy called Chris then, who'd run before in 2015 and was running again in 2017 to try and get him elected. But that that election finishes, you don't win your seat. Well, this is important, James, because you meet lots of good people on this. And actually, remember, you're being assessed on Mm. how well you support. Okay. And MPs who are already elected are assigned seats to assist who are in safe seats. So I met the great Guy Opperman, yeah, because he was regularly in Bishop Auckland and because he saw me every day, we just got to know each other. And then I've met who was this sort of un, you know, unknown individual at the time, really, to the wider public, but now the Prime Minister of our United Kingdom, uh, Mr. Rishi Sunak. Oh, in, that's where you first came across Rishi? That's where I first met Rishi in Bishop Auckland. So he he was taking over Hague's, Hague's seat? I thought he'd been elected in was 2015. He, was he already elected? Yeah, so he was already running in 2017. And yeah, uh, yeah he, he came over, must have met him seven, eight times. I'm sure he remembers. I'm sure he does. I'm sure that's why he's marked you out for ministerial office. Well, I think we won't talk about Rishi Sachs, mate, but you know, I actually have to, I have to now use this when the next reshuffle I'll go, remember that, remember that time we met in Bishop Auckland? Yeah. I'm sure it'll work. I'm sure he'll be like, oh, now you've jogged my memory. Uh, there's a vacancy at the treasury. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? You know, I'm sure, I'm sure that, I'm sure that the, the financiers of the world are going to be listening to this and going, yeah, there's the guy we want running the economy. Exactly. I'm sure, I'm definitely sure everyone will feel safe in your hands, Jonathan. What did you think of Rishi James? Because you met Rishi. In twenty in, on vote leave because that was quite ballsy of him really to. to I go dealt with Rishi on vote leave, yeah. I um because I was doing a lot of the regional stuff. Uh, I didn't speak to him that much. I mean, there were you know there was a lot of stuff over the summer that he wasn't really a leaver. That is, I don't believe that's true. Um, everything he was, we asked him to do, he did, and people forget at the time he wasn't really that. He was just known as the person who had William Hague seat. He wasn't really known as Rishi Sunak, so it's very unfair. So, uh, but I met him early on when I was working for Michael and I thought he was super smart straight away, which I've, I've said to a number of people at the time. Did um, you see a future prime minister? I don't think you can say a future prime minister. I thought this guy definitely ended up in cabinet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you, when you meet, when you meet him compared to the, all the other MPs you sit in meetings with, 
um, at that kind of junior ministerial level that he was at the time, he was definitely impressive, over the detail, confident, uh, clear, uh, gave clear direction, all that kind of stuff that you want. All the things say. you would say about me when you first met me. All of the things I would say exactly about you. But the smirk on your face suggests you thought otherwise, James. Well, luckily, uh, listeners can't see the smirk. So you, you would have got away with that if you hadn't mentioned it yourself. <laughs> so we're up to the 17 election. You've had your, your first go of being an MP. And in part two, we're going to have a look at, we're going to do your journey to becoming an actual MP and being selected and then eventually winning Stoke-on-Trent North. Well, thank you for tuning in to Inside Whitehall with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode. Uh, We've all enjoyed uh, recording it and we hope that you'll continue on the journey with us to learn about what really happens inside Parliament and government. So please follow and subscribe however you're listening to us. Please also leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to interact with us, if you want to share your views and thoughts, if you want to see what's coming up, you can follow us on Twitter at Whitehall Pod UK. And we'll see you soon.